This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to our show today. I'm Thomas Miller. And before we jump into our first segment, I wanted to let you know that we are going to be doing a current update on the coronavirus from Steve Love's perspective. He's been on the DFW media quite a bit this week, all over. And now we're going to bring it home. So he and I are going to unpack what's been going on. That will be a don't miss at quarter past the hour, round quarter past the hour, round 145. Many of you remember singer Karen Carpenter. She would have turned 70 this past week, were she still with us. Her sudden and shocking death due to heart failure resulting from anorexia stunned many of us back in 1983. But it was one of the turning points of bringing awareness to this very important issue. Sandy Potter is Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Texas Health Behavioral Health. And she sat down recently with Steve Love of the DFW Hospital Council to talk about this very issue in light of remembering Karen Carpenter. But I remember the tragedy of when Karen Carpenter, the singer, had an eating disorder. And for many people, that was kind of a new type of uh, behavioral health issue. What can you say about eating disorders and what we should be aware of? Well, eating disorders are no respecter of persons or of a person's, whether they're male or female, or their age. They can present at any age. Most often we see them in adolescence. It seems to be identified more in women uh, and young Uh, adolescent females, but it can occur in any age group. There's uh, Billy Bob Thornton is a good example of a a male individual who's been open about his own eating disorder. And I think that if you, as a, a member of the family or a friend, in your gut think something's wrong, then you should ask. We have to remember that we don't cause a problem by asking a question. Some people think that it is actually a myth that if I ask you if you're suicidal, all of a sudden you'll be suicidal. So for any behavioral health condition, if you have a concern, if there's something that just doesn't feel right without me telling you all of the symptoms and and giving an exhaustive list of the diagnostic criteria, I like to tell people, trust your gut. If your gut tells you something's off, then ask. And again, when we ask, we ask it in a loving way, not in a condemning way or what's wrong with you kind of way. We ask like, I'm very concerned about what I've seen. You've lost what appears to be a significant amount of weight in the last month or whatever time period. You should ask that question because it could be even a non-behavioral health problem. For example, an adult who may not be aware that all of a sudden they've switched on to diabetes. They could be just deteriorating in front of you, losing a lot of weight. It could be that. If you don't ask, you don't know. 
close to you. And if you need help for someone you know or love, there are many excellent programs in North Texas who can help. And Texas Behavioral Health is one of those. And they can be reached easily from their website at texashealth.org. You know, for most of us, we spend about a third of our lives or more at work. So what a better place to incorporate mental health wellness right along with other wellness initiatives in the workplace. Again, Steve and Sandy. Employers in many cases have cafeterias with healthy food. They have walking trails. Some have exercise rooms. Let's look at employers and what are some things they can do to help with behavioral health and improving the mental health of their employees? Well, number one, making it a part of the everyday conversation and intentionally adding it to part of your newsletter where you talk about mindfulness, where you talk about the signs and symptoms of a behavioral health condition. You can pick any topic related to substance use disorders. There's a host of things additionally that employers can do, such as creating safe spaces at work to meditate. So people could take on on their break, you could do a 10-minute meditation. There's lots of ways where we can work in wellness and stress management into our everyday culture when we do things like that. How is that starting to rise in today's culture from your perch? Well, we're seeing it come up a lot in the conversations with employers and health plans and providers. It's a part of our conversation that we have with employer groups. We can work with that from uh, the employee assistance perspective even. I think all employers now are seeing employee assistance programs as being more than just going for counseling. They can be also for education on meditation and mindfulness. We're seeing that come up a lot in the conversation and people intentionally adding that to their culture. I've actually been to a large health system meeting where the meeting started with five minutes of meditation. And it was quite calming and it made the meeting very focused. I think that's part of us also learning that uh, being distracted and multitasking is not efficient. And it not only adds to our stress, but it decreases our efficiencies. Employers understand that. So if you take time to center and to be mindful, you will get a lot more done in a shorter period of time. So what are some even things that you're doing within your own culture in Arlington and around the Metroplex in North Texas to implement this? We have some employers that we work with where we've added some of those components where we can do workshops on meditation or mindfulness in general to help people understand. We also review apps, applications for your phone that can help people not only in our healthcare system, but in the community uh, manage their stress better and be more focused. What was that one that you mentioned you use? Uh, 10% Happier. I use that app and I enjoy it. It's, I find it very calming and I have a long commute to work like most people in North Texas. And one of the meditations I really enjoy is how to stay calm on the drive. <laughs> <laughs> and we all need that. You get a lot of practice around here, don't you? That's right. On that for sure. How do you see the health plans getting involved in this? Well, that's part of the 
contracting and the packaging, I would say, of the whole person healthcare to focus on the whole being, that reimbursement strategies can include those components too, where the employer is buying that, they want the health plan to manage that and add that into the whole benefit. Thank you, Sandy, for joining us. She'll be back in a few weeks with another discussion on removing the stigmas around behavioral health. Now, when we come back, do you know that one of the best places to get injured is at home? We'll talk about preventing burns, which most often happen, believe it or not, at home. Some great tips and reminders next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're going to talk today not only about burns, but more geared towards preventing burns and things we can do to hopefully keep people from having to be treated for burns, especially severe burns. And we're going to have with us today Stephanie Campbell. Stephanie is the Burn Program Manager at Parkland Regional Burn Center, located at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, we'll jump right in. What is the leading cause of burn injuries in adults? Well, the leading cause of burn injuries in adults is actually fire and flame injuries. And in this area, that's mostly from house fires and um, also gasoline-related injuries. We see a ton of gasoline-related injuries in this area. And usually it's from people using gasoline in a way they probably shouldn't, like trying to start or increase a fire or using it somewhere um, within the home. Based on your experience, as our listeners especially the adults, how can they lower that risk of burn injuries? Well, the most important thing that your listeners can do right now is go home and check their smoke alarms. Smoke alarms save lives. You know, they did a study um, not too long ago, a few years ago, where they put 1970s furniture and curtains and all that kind of stuff in a room Um, and then modern-day materials in another room, and they ignited a fire in both rooms. In the 1970s, they estimated you probably had 10 to 12 minutes to get out of a fire if it started, to escape a fire. Today, they estimate you only have two to four minutes, if that. Today's fires, because of modern materials, modern synthetics, all of the, the plastics and other materials in our house, they burn hotter and faster than ever before. So escaping is key. That early warning system of smoke alarms are key. You should have smoke alarms installed in every sleeping space and on every level of the home, even the basement. And you should be checking those every month, making sure they sound, testing the batteries, changing the batteries frequently. You can actually buy smoke alarms with 10-year batteries now, which are nice because you don't have to change them. Um, You can just test them every month. You know, that's great advice. Let's switch gears a little bit, Nan, especially for our listeners that have children. What are the leading causes of burn injuries, especially in young children? The leading cause of burn injury, especially in kids aged zero to five years old, are scald burns from hot food and hot liquid. The majority of these burn injuries happen in the kitchen 
we all know that age group, toddlers especially, they are fast, they're curious, they don't always understand the consequences of of, of their actions, they don't always understand what's hot in the kitchen. Um, so you just turn your back for a second and they're pulling something off the stove or pulling the cord of a crock pot that's just kind of hanging over a counter. So the main way they get burned is usually pulling hot stuff off the stove, like a hot pot or a hot cup of coffee right onto them. So for the parents that are in our listening audience and also for people that work in daycare centers or help take care of children, what would you tell those folks that they need to do to prevent burn injuries in toddlers and young children? So we want to make sure we keep anything hot out of reach. We have a saying that keep kids back three feet from the heat. When you're using your stove, use your back burners and turn your pot handles. It's a real simple thing, but turn your pot handles away from the front of the stove, toward the back of the stove or the side. That way a little one can't reach up and grab the handle. Um, The other thing you can do is either gate off your kitchen entirely, which is the ideal situation if you have real young toddlers, or if you have some older children that um, can help start to learn, you can actually make what we call a no-kid zone. You can take masking tape or some kind of tape and mark off three feet around your stove and help the kids understand that when you're cooking, you um, this is the no-kid zone. So there won't be any running or playing through this area while someone's cooking at the stove. The other thing you can do is just keep things back on the counter. Keep the crock pot back. Make sure the cord's not hanging over the counter. Don't set coffee cups right at the edge of the counter. And if you're holding a baby and drinking a hot liquid, make sure you're using a travel cup uh, with a lid because sometimes they just pull your cup right onto them as well. You know, we've got listeners too that aren't toddlers. They aren't small children. They aren't parents. They aren't adults. They're in that adolescent group. What are the most common types of burn injuries you've experienced in adolescence? The adolescent group really has a a different mix of um, burn injuries. They they get burned in all kinds of different ways. We do see house fires. We do see scald injuries. Um, In this group, we also do see injuries from fire play. So I want to make sure your listeners know um, that fire play can have serious consequences. Um, When you're playing with fire, sometimes things don't always go as, as planned. So we've had teens who accidentally ignite their clothing on fire, or uh, maybe they're using some kind of accelerant to burn something or try to start a fire and the accelerant kind of blows up or explodes onto them. That fire play doesn't always kind of go like they think it's going to go. So I would encourage any, you know, teenagers that are listening, clearly, we don't want to mess with fire. Um, the parents need to just have a conversation with their kids about when we, when is the safe time to use fire? How do we use it? And make sure you've just had that conversation conversation with your kids that there can be really serious consequences. You know, we're all in this together. We're all trying to improve the health of the community. And with that said, what are some of the community programs that the Parkland Regional Burn Center conducts to help educate people in the community on burn prevention? Well, you might have noticed, but everything, all the tips I've been giving and and ways people get injured that I've been talking about, a lot of them are behavior related. So we are out in the community all the time trying to help people understand the behaviors that that they can do or not do um, to reduce their risk of getting a burn injury. So we are out there trying to teach them what not to do and what to do instead. 
for the example, using your back burners on a stove is really easy, but it can really prevent a serious injury to a young toddler in your home. So we partner with all kinds of local organizations, with local parent groups. We teach parents in parent classes, early child care development centers. We partner with them to make sure parents of young toddlers understand a lot of the things I just talked about with preventing scald injuries. We are always out at community fairs and health fairs, talking to people, helping them understand how people get burn injuries and what they can do um, to prevent it as well. And then we're continuously evaluating here, how are people getting burned? Where are those people coming from? And how can we reach those people in that community to help them understand that they need to change their practice or their behavior in order to stay safer? If one of our listeners or a member of their family is burned, what should they do? And also, what should they not do? If you sustain a burn that is over a very large surface of your body or someone you know does when you're around, the first thing you want to do is call 911 and and seek immediate medical attention. So, you know, I think you'll know when the burn is, is more severe than you, but anything larger than the palm surface of your hand should probably get immediate medical attention. Um, Anything that's over a large portion of your body, like, you know, a whole arm or part of your upper body, like your head and neck, or maybe your whole leg, that should, you should call 911 and, and get that immediate attention. The first thing you should do for smaller burns over smaller parts of your body is run it under cool running water. Cool running water is really all you need in the beginning. And you should do that for a while until the sting lessens. You know how burns sting right when you get them? You want to put whatever's burned under cool running water until that sting goes away. It might be 10, 15, even 20 minutes. That's the best thing you can do immediately for your burn injury. It does two things. It cools the tissue um, and helps stop the burning process and prevents it from getting deeper. And it also relieves that sting for you a little bit. So that helps. You don't want to put ice on it because ice actually prevents blood flow from getting to the burn, and that can cause deeper tissue damage. Some people do that because it feels better, but it's not the best thing. And you don't want to put anything from your pantry or your refrigerator or anything like that onto your burn. We've heard all kinds of things, like eggs and mustard and um, butter. My mom used to put butter on all my burns, but that's not what you want to do. Just the cool running water. Anything else you throw on there right after it happens will actually seal in the heat, and we don't want to do that. We want to keep nice, cool running water. When the sting gets better, if it's just a small burn and you don't think you need to go seek medical help, then you can just put some antibiotic ointment on it and cover it up until it starts to heal. If it's larger than your palm or it's causing you a lot of pain or you think it's really looking red and maybe infected, then, of course, even a small burn, you would want to seek medical treatment. Thank you, Stephanie. And there are more great tips from her full-length interview on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, on all your favorite podcast players. Now, coming up next, healthcare is changing how it is delivered. And we're going to hear from one of the best in the business on advocating excellent patient care at JPS Health Network in Fort Worth. That's next on the human side of healthcare.
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And we're back with the human side of healthcare, and we have got with us Laura Burnside. She's the Senior Vice President, Chief Experience Officer at JPS Health System. You know, it's interesting you say you're the Chief Experience Officer. So does that mean you get involved in patient experiences and their perceptions of JPS? Oh, yes, absolutely. We look at every aspect of care that our patients receive when they come through the hospital, how they access care. Once they get there, are we doing the things that they're asking us to do, that they want us to do? And are we treating them in a way that allows them to trust us so that they can actually participate in their care and partner with us so that we receive better outcomes for our patients? So let me ask you another question, and I know you've worked in different hospitals. On the Dallas side, I guess we have Parkland, which is known as the Public Safety Net Hospital. And of course, in Fort Worth, the Public Safety Net Hospital is JPS Health System. Now, all hospitals have a little bit of safety net because if you have an emergency room, you're going to treat people many times that fall into the safety net. But how would you differentiate the patient experience, say at a Parkland or JPS versus other hospitals? I think we have a stigma in public health that at JPS we are actually trying to change. So if you are visiting a public hospital or any public facility, we tend to have an idea in our head of what that might be like. And we have every opportunity, whether it be at JPS or Parkland, to change that for every resident that's here in the DFW Metroplex. And I think that's really critically important. Every patient deserves great care. It doesn't matter if you have a home, don't have a home, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're in any kind of uh, situation financially, we all deserve to receive great health care. When we have a patient who walks through our doors, and for instance, let's say they are financially in a different um, scenario than, than some of us are, they don't have a home. They don't have a place that they go and lay their head every night. They may not have food that they're able to access. Those are challenges that we deal with every single day. And in a lot of cases, those patients on their best day in the community are disrespected. We have the chance to change that when they're within our four walls. So we work very hard with our employees and with our physicians and our advanced practice providers to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to take great care of a patient. That means, did we listen to them? Do we understand what their needs are? Do we understand what their challenges are? And can we address those while they're within our four walls so that when they're discharged back out into the community, wherever they go, they can actually follow a treatment plan and get better outcomes? You know, your points are so well taken, and it ties back to the social drivers of health. It does. You know, housing, transportation, people living in poverty, and obviously it impacts health care. So... You're so right on the patient experience. And along those same lines, I know most of the listeners hopefully understand football. Mm -hmm. And you see the offense go into a huddle. And they actually have a huddle before they execute a play. Uh, In hospitals, I see many of the people that are impacting the patient experience 
huddle. In fact, I mentioned when I was in a hospital Mm -hmm. and many of the clinicians huddled. Can you elaborate on what a huddle is and how it works? Sure. We do shift huddles for every shift change. And and those are informational, you know, what's happening in the hospital. Is there anything that's particularly important for the team that's coming on board to know? The, the second piece to this is we do something a little bit different at JPS that is a preoperative huddle. So for instance, if you're coming in for surgery, you, when you're in the pre-op area, you will meet your entire operative team. So they will come in the room together They will ask questions. They will introduce themselves. They will help you understand as a patient where they'll even be standing or where they would be positioned in the operating room. And we find that brings a lot of comfort to our patients, but it also allows us to understand some of the things that may be happening within that patient's life and in that world that could potentially um, change their surgery. So for instance, if they haven't fasted, we would be able to find that out during that surgery and postpone appropriately. So we find it not only a service initiative, but also a quality. Well, thanks for explaining that. And I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We've kind of focused within the four walls of the hospital, mm-hmm. but I know at JPS Health System and at many of our other hospitals throughout the Metroplex you have outpatient centers, or you may have surgery centers, et cetera. Let's talk a little on the outpatient side. How do you impact the experience of patients when they're being treated as an outpatient? So our patients everywhere don't experience healthcare as one point of interaction. They experience healthcare as a continuum of care. And that's really important because from the moment that they begin to even access your system, whether it's online or they've heard about it from a neighbor, that becomes their first point of interaction with the facility. And the transitions that we make are really critical and they're very important to the way that a patient perceives their care overall. And the perception of care is important because it ties back to quality. We know that when we can reduce anxiety with a patient, so particularly when they're transitioning from inpatient to outpatient or outpatient to inpatient, if we can impact that transition of care, reduce anxiety, eliminate fear, our patients actually hear their instructions better, they can participate in their care better, they understand that whole um, aspect of care that they're receiving. That's important because outcomes are better when patients are more relaxed, when they trust their caregiver, when their anxiety is reduced, they actually receive um, better care in their minds. But at the end of the day, it's really about quality and the outcome that they receive from that because they were able to hear it differently. And at the end of the day, there's a circular effect that happens here. When as a caregiver, you have a patient who is experiencing care that they're very pleased with, and they have a great outcome, as a caregiver, you feel really good about the care that you have provided. And when you feel really good about the care you've provided, it makes you want to come back the next day. And that's becoming an ever-increasing challenge for us in the healthcare industry, is making sure that we are taking care of our caregivers and that they're actually feeling good about the care that they provide and feeling good about the place that they work so that they will continue to come back and take great care of our patients. You know, that's an excellent point when you talk about the people that care for the patients, the clinicians, 
You know, in this industry, one of the things we're looking at is burnout. And that's a topic we'll talk about for another day, but that impacts the patient experience as well. Yes. You want the caretakers to also feel good about what they're doing. That's correct. You know, Laura, I was meeting uh, the other day with the CEO of General Electric Mm -hmm. and was actually talking to him, and he brought up some excellent points. The points he made were, how is healthcare going to change? And I'm going to tie this back to the patient experience. You've got baby boomers that are really switching from commercial to Medicare. Mm -hmm. You've got many of the millennials, and I think there was a survey that showed about 83% of millennials don't want to go to hospitals, don't want to go to doctor's offices. If anything, they want to go to the mini clinic at the drugstore to receive their health care, and they want it received now. We have artificial intelligence mm-hmm. that we're dealing with, the disruptors of health care, Amazon, Apple, you know, Berkshire, Hathaway. We've got all of these moving parts. So with all that said, what's that going to do to the patient experience? I think it has to change. We have to evolve along with what American culture is doing. So in my mind, there is a high-tech component that we have to meet. There's no question about that. There's also this high-touch component that a patient will never want to be without. So somewhere in between high-tech and high-touch is a sweet spot. You know, that's a good point, finding that sweet spot. That's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. What are some of the recommendations you have for us, us being the people in healthcare, how we need to change? I think there's a real drive toward healthcare that's convenient and not the same way that we have provided healthcare in the past. So for instance, we need to be able to provide healthcare that's close to home. We need to be able to provide healthcare that's in home whether that's telehealth and delivery of medications or uh, providing food services and food deserts throughout the county, whether it's transportation where transportation might be needed, because we always need the hospital. We're always going to need to be able to have inpatients and surgeries and those kind of things. But when it comes to preventative medicine, the more convenient we can make that for our patient, the better. Now I know why you're involved in the experience of the patient because you have to listen to the patients. you probably on the cutting edge of seeing this shift, and you're hearing from the patients what they really want, and not only as patients but as consumers. Yes. you know, Earlier you mentioned the survey. Well, we look at that survey to find trends and to find comments from our patients that tell us what they're asking for when it comes to care. And then we respond and do everything that we can to provide that. So as an industry, we have got to look at ways that we can provide health care in the communities where people live in a convenient way, one that's very fast, that they're not coming and sitting all day long in a physician's office or they're not having to go to a, a central location. And that and that's the wave of healthcare going forward. Thank you, Laura. Healthcare is indeed changing. And you just heard from someone who goes to work every day to make things better for JPS patients and for the entire system. And those are changes you may notice next time you go to a hospital or a doctor's office in North Texas. Coming up next, Steve Love and coronavirus updates. Hear the latest from the front lines as the human side of healthcare returns right after this quick break. 
continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare. Thomas Miller along with Steve Love, and we are going to talk this segment about the biggest story in healthcare today, and that is obviously the coronavirus. Yeah, you're right, Thomas. You know, the coronavirus, uh, whether you're listening to local news or national news, it really is kind of a topic of conversation. And, you know, I think the only interruptions for the most part this week were when segments were done related to Super Tuesday. Yeah, and it's kind of dominated everything. Let me ask you a question on that topic, because it is so prominent right now. I was in Costco this week, and I wouldn't say the shelves were bare by no means. That's not the case, but they were inventory was definitely down. And a lady said that uh, they had a truckload of paper goods, toilet paper, paper towels, that kind of thing. Said it was gone in about an hour. A truckload. I mean, so people are obviously stocking up. There is a sense of urgency around this. And yet, I was looking just the other day that worldwide, according to the World Health Organization, there are between 300,000 and, say, 650,000 deaths from the flu every year. Now, we have a couple of 3,000 on coronavirus. Steve, it seems like if we treated the flu like we treat are treating coronavirus, that the whole world would be shut down between November and May. Well, I think you bring up a good point. And I think if we could continue to put the focus on the flu, such as please get your flu shot, please practice good personal hygiene, use soap and water when you wash your hands, cough into your sleeve or cough into your elbow. If you're not feeling well, don't go to school. If you're not feeling well, especially even if it's a low-grade fever, don't go to work. So I do agree with you. If we put the real focus and attention on the flu, the way we have this novel coronavirus, that would be good. I think the thing is, though, there is more unknown about this virus than the flu, and I think while some people are looking at it from the point of view, it's very serious, no doubt about it, and we need to focus on it. That fear of the unknown is what's got many people very upset. Well, and I know that some younger people are succumbing to this and dying. I did see one article where a lady in England described her symptoms. She was a middle-aged, it was a middle-aged female, and she said that when the virus took effect and was at its peak, that it was almost like her lungs. She said she really was struggling for breath. And then after she was cleared, she said it was still hard to walk long distances because she was struggling for breath and said that she was wondering what the long-term effects of this would be. But I think your point is right, that we don't know all the facts on this. And, yeah, that's the uncertainty is, what are we not being told even? Well, you know, I think what we have been told, and as you know, I'm not a physician, I'm not a clinician, but based on everything I've seen from the people that are the experts in the medical field, 
most of the deaths, I'm not saying all of the deaths, but most of the deaths have been people that were a little older, had other complications, chronic illness such as diabetes, congestive heart failure, were very obese, which impacts your breathing and your breathing capacity. So I think by and large, most healthy people thus far, based on the information we've been given, uh, if they contract this, have a good chance of making a recovery. Okay, another one that's in the news that we can't ignore. Let me be a little bit of an antagonist here a little bit because there have been some stories, I think everybody's probably seen them, about testing and the CDC releasing people before they, their tests were back in. Can you comment to what's been going on on that level? You know, healthcare is not an exact science. So I understand uh, how people get upset, and I understand how it's easy to point fingers. Yes, the initial test kits that were sent out were not perfect. There was some flaws. The CDC had to correct that. I know that many of the testing initially had to be done at the CDC as a result of that. But now those test kits uh, are being disseminated throughout the nation to the states and to the, to the local people. Now, would it have been much better if that had all been done much sooner? Well, of course it would. But it is what it is, and I think we're trying to do the best we can now. It's really a fluid situation. You know, how this is being handled, say, in Washington State, versus how it's being handled in other places is so important. And I know this week it was very unfortunate at San Antonio where a patient was released and then tested positive. I think Governor Abbott summed it up pretty well uh, and laid out some, I wouldn't say demands, but he really laid out some things that he thought would be more beneficial. But, you know, this is a novel coronavirus. We're going to continue to learn as we go along. So have mistakes been made? Yes. I think overall, though, we've got to work together so that we minimize those mistakes going forward. So if I could maybe put you on the spot, just from your perspective, you've been in management in this industry from a very high perch for 45 years if you were a teacher and you were giving the government's response and reactions so far a grade, what would you choose? You know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, you know, and to be fair, overall, I would say I'd give our government a B. I would definitely give them a B, and I'll explain to you why. You're right. I've been in healthcare 45 years. 45 years ago, we weren't near as global as we are now. And so I've been through the swine flu. I've been through SARS. I've been through MERS. I've been through uh, Legionnaire's disease. I've been through all of that. I think we learn a little bit each time. But this truly is a very global society we live in today. You know, some people 45 or 50 years ago never traveled to China or never traveled to Europe. Now there are people that do that monthly. So, you know, I think we have to be careful giving out grades. Mistakes have been made, but overall, let's don't panic, and I think we'll get through this. Now, you've had a lot of media attention about the really past couple of weeks, but this week has been pretty intense for you. 
What are some of the questions and what are some of the comments that you've been highlighting in the media? Well, you know, I think the main question the media ask, whether it be uh, print media, whether it be radio or whether it be TV, are hospitals prepared? And the answer I've been given is very consistent. We are very prepared. We have coordinated with our local county health departments who have been terrific, not just Dallas County, but Tarrant County, Collin County, Denton County. Everyone's working collaboratively together. The state has been really coordinating, not only with providers, but also with first responders. So are we prepared? Yes. Will we learn if we do uh, deal with difficult situations? Of course we will. But as of now, we are prepared. That's one question. The other question I'm asked is, will everyone be put in isolation in a hospital? Again, I'm not a clinician. I think there are some people that are being monitored as as we speak, uh, but they're not in a hospital. So I think for now, people in North Texas don't panic, practice good health habits, and we're going to get through this. And at the end of the day, we'll learn some lessons, but they'll be valuable for the future. All right, let's talk about next week really quickly. We are going to talk about a positive note, and that is one very unique city right here among us in the Metroplex that is designated as a Blue Zone city. So we'll find out what that is and why next week. Absolutely. I think Fort Worth has done an excellent job. You know, there's been a truly community-based initiative And they've done an absolute terrific job. All right, Steve, you keep doing a great job in the media, and we will see you back here next week. Look forward to it.